It's a very short poem by George Herbert uh, that says, uh, How well her name an army doth present, in whom the Lord of hosts did pitch his tent. That's the poem. The, the key to the poem is this uh, first uh, little phrase in the opening line, um, her name an army. Um, her name, army, is an anagram for Mary. An army plays on the Lord of hosts who pitched his tent in her womb. Now, this is George Herbert. If you know George Herbert at all, he's um, these, uh, one of these uh, Anglican poets of the 17th century. So go back 400 years um, to this poet. He's, in, he's an Anglican priest, um, served the king, and then ended up taking a country parish and serving there for a good while. And this poem, as you can hear it, uh, is Herbert dancing this dangerous line between honoring Mary and venerating her. And that is the key issue for Protestants, is what to do with Mary. And if you go back and read Luther or Zwingli or Calvin, they flee from Mary. For them, this is a dangerous doctrine and a dangerous topic, and they won't have much to do with her. But by the time of the 17th century, the next century, um, there begins to be an interest in speaking about Mary and her role. G.K. Chesterton, who was converted into Catholicism, said, this is the key issue of Catholicism, not the papacy, not the Pope. To get over this one, that this is the mother of our Lord, and that she is a perfect woman, and her womb was perfect. The difficult kind of idea, what do we do with Mary? It's much easier as Protestants simply to ignore her and move on with the disciples and Jesus. But um, the the Gospels won't let us do that. If you heard them today in the Gospel of Luke, to do that would simply be to ignore these major portions of Scripture that want us to deal with Mary. Look, if you just do, for example, the three major Gospels that feature her, Matthew begins in chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he begins a genealogy that's dozens and dozens of men. There was Adam and Enoch and Seth, and he begins to move through this genealogy And if you know that genealogy, there are four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Among dozens and dozens of men, all four women, Gentiles, Bathsheba probably, all four women are kind of the outcasts, they're the marginalized of society. Tamar plays the harlot, Rahab is a harlot. And so Matthew sets up this sequence of the coming of the Savior of the world, through these outcast, marginalized, non-Jewish women who are the absolute keys in the link of this story moving along among countless named non-righteous men. And so women feature so importantly for this genealogy, and it ends with this, Joseph of the tribe of Judah who was married to Mary. Mary's the fifth woman in the link. And Matthew wants to know she plays a role as big as Tamar, as big as Rahab, as big as Ruth. Without Mary, the story of redemption doesn't happen. Uh, Women so central. If you go to John's gospel, a very different beginning. Jesus goes into the desert. We have no um, genealogy of Jesus. The first major scene, uh, Jesus and his family are at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And his mother's first words are, Jesus, they are out of wine. What an odd statement. She doesn't ask him anything. She doesn't ask for his advice. 
She simply speaks the Lord into his first miracle. And John gives us that powerful word. And Jesus has this strange rebuke. What are you, woman, to say this to me? But then he does the miracle. It's for John, um, this is no longer Mary's son. He's taken on his divine role. But at the end of the gospel, John brings Mary back in again as Jesus hangs from the cross. And he says, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. For John, Mary has this important connection to the linkage of family, to the redemption of broken families. Mary loses her son, John takes his place. And and Mary plays this important role in that gospel. She's central there with um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these scenes where women are so close to Jesus. And today we have Luke's entry with Elizabeth. Three times Elizabeth says in this greeting, blessed are you, blessed is your womb, and blessed are you, the mother of my Lord. Who am I that the mother of my Lord, Lord there, uh, the reformers avoided this, but now scholarship is pretty definitive. That means Yahweh. That means the divine God. You are the mother of my God. Blessed are you that you have come to me. And then just to reinforce it, the fifth time, Mary adds these words, all generations will call me blessed. In other words, if we don't call Mary blessed, if we don't hail her, then we're simply disobeying Mary's own desire. Luke's own gospel inspired for us. We ought to esteem and hold Mary high. No, Christmas is about Advent. It's about the coming of the Messiah, Christ. But God gives us in Scripture our doorway, our entry, a lens into the life and the work of Jesus through the eyes and the life of Mary. So three thoughts about Mary. What does she do for the life and the work of the church? First of all, she is the first disciple. You think so often as the first disciples as these bumbling fishermen, these teenagers mostly, who run around with Jesus. But that's decades after Mary believed. Mary is a disciple in two ways, one in her faith and two in her suffering. The angel came to Mary, a teenager, an outcast, marginalized, not of a royal state, and says, oh, by the way, the ruler of the universe is going to be born in your womb and you're a virgin. And Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. I mean, think how different our faith is. We have the evidence of millions of Christians that have gone behind us or come before us in our faith. We have pretty overwhelming history that this guy, Jesus, walked the earth and was seen after he was raised. We have the scriptures that have been handed around the whole world. And all Mary had was a promise and an empty womb of a virgin. And she believed That's so significant for these disciples get to meet Jesus and hear him teach and see his signs. She believes on a word. That is faith. That is the definition of hope, to believe in what cannot be seen. And so Mary's our first disciple, to believe when everything in your sight, everything in your emotions tells you that this will not come to pass. Extraordinary faith by a woman. And she obeys into a world that means suffering for her. 
The scene after we read with Elizabeth today, um, Mary and Joseph, they take Jesus to be dedicated at the temple. And there's a guy there serving, this elderly man, uh, Simeon, who's been waiting for the Lord. And he takes the child and gives a blessing to the child, as we do here, you know, this blessing upon the child in his life. And he says in the middle of the prayer to Mary, uh, he says, um, this child will be for the rise and the fall of many nations, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. That's a prophecy to Mary. This child will tear a hole, a rend through your life. For Mary, you have to understand what this means for her. You know that scene in Luke, in the very next scene, uh, Jesus is 12 years old. They've gone to the temple, uh, to, the, to the synagogue, and they're on their journey back, and they can't find Jesus. And it says, And Mary and Joseph were terrified that their son wasn't with them. Jesus had began to take on his role as the Messiah, and that meant he was no longer their son. When uh, the angel comes and tells Mary to name the child Jesus, she doesn't get the privilege of naming. This won't be her child. It's like Hannah in the book of Samuel. This child will be dedicated to the Lord. Mary will give this child away to his work. In those days, if you know um, what it meant to have a Messiah, think about Jesus' time. The Persians and the Romans and the Greeks are in rule. And prior to Jesus has been uh, Simon the Just or Judah Maccabees. These, These men who rose up as messiahs and they took Israel's army and all of them died. Some had their eyes plucked out, some were burned alive, some had their limbs cut off. Mary, your son's going to be a Messiah. This has to go through her mind. Messiahs get butchered by the Romans. Brutal. I mean, Mary's got an instinct, yes, my child will go. For her, this testing, I will serve, I will suffer what it takes to be an agent of the Lord, not just a disciple who says, I believe, but I'll walk the journey that requires of me. Mary's our first disciple. Mary's a woman. Second, the womanhood is not incidental in the least. We get these 12 disciples, but long before them, we get a woman who believed. Prior to Mary, you you know in Israel's history, women like the Queen of Sheba or Salome or... um, Jezebel, or the Cleopatras, the string of Cleopatras, ones maybe just passing away as Jesus is born. And they're dictators, they're powerful, they're from the elite of society. And Mary's choice as a lowly one is so significant for the gospel and the life of the church. Who has remembered me in my lowest state, that's what Mary says like Rahab, like Tamar, like Ruth, a woman who has no standing or class in society. God takes Mary and puts her into this role to play a central role, a place in the redemption of the world. And at that moment, any historian, secular or Christian or otherwise, worth his or her salt, knows that the role and the dignity of women took a turn there that would never go back. We talk today about women's rights and women's opportunity, women's equality, and we're not there everywhere. There's abuses in our culture, but that language owes itself to that generation. Paul wrote in his letters often, a man shall have one wife. I think never does he say a woman shall have one husband. 
And it's significant because these men were, were marrying and divorcing and collecting wives. And Paul says, no more. That changed Western society. Paul said, not in our churches you don't. One wife, you honor the woman. That's what that law was for. Stop mistreating these creatures of God's dignity, of his worth, of his image. And that whole movement that began about the marginalized, about women, owes to Mary's choice that these women are selected. They're featured all over in Luke's gospel. It's one of the distinctive traits of it. And this way that we value the outcast and the marginalized, those who don't have benefits, is owed to the church. And Mary is a constant reminder when we hear the words of the gospel that God looked on a woman and called her blessed. And we ought to do the same. And related to Mary's womanhood is her motherhood. It's not, uh, women almost have to, in a professional world, apologize for motherhood today. But we've got like 46 children in the church, if I'm right. So motherhood is the key to all society. Without motherhood, you don't have families, you don't have children, society ceases to exist. And motherhood is crucial. It's a metaphor for life and family and care and nurturing. And that scene in uh, John's gospel is so important for us. Mary, behold your son. John, behold your mother. John, very young. He's the one in Jesus' gospel that probably reclines against Jesus, a young teenager, no doubt. And um, maybe he doesn't have parents. Maybe they've, not, uh, they've abandoned John. We don't know. But Mary takes the role of taking in the orphan. And she mothers the family. These women in Luke's gospel mother the disciples, these, these, this ragtag group of men, and they nurture and care for them. In those early centuries of the church, Paul does appoint priests and bishops that are men. A couple of women maybe had an apostolate role. But they do a huge amount of work for building those churches. He names them again and again. And they build the church. Maybe they don't have the titles, but they do the work. We know that from history, that women form this whole role of teaching, of nurturing, of building community, holding together these, um, these bodies of people that grew. And Mary's motherhood of John is a reminder that our church, when we come together in Christ, we are a new family. It's not just um, incidental that John becomes her child. It's that when we, you and I, take Eucharist together, we meet together, we are brothers and sisters. I'm parents to your children, you're parents to my children. There's a sibling, a bond that happens in Christ that breaks down those barriers so that the church becomes a family. And we become people who nurture and care for one another. I say this probably every couple of months in a sermon, but in the early centuries of the church, that family dynamic, that metaphor, was so powerful that poverty and orphanages and widows, their, their need was eradicated in huge portions of uh, little communities and societies. Like Historically, we know this, because this family dimension, orphans and widows who don't have families come in and their needs are met, and that's the largest growth of the church in the first two or three centuries because the church acted as a family. They look at that symbol of Mary caring for a need when she saw it out of her own need. It's a, it's a picture, it's a model of who we are as the church. So yes, Advent is about Mary, I mean about Jesus. It's about the coming of the Savior of the world 
who will bring down the high and bring up the low. He will feed the hungry. He will clothe the naked. He will heal the sick. But Mary leads us into faith in him to believe beyond hope, to commit ourselves, to believe into suffering, and to be a disciple that loves the needs of the world as Christ has loved us. Amen.